We're in the book of Luke, continuing that series, Luke chapter 8, verse 40 is where we're going to start today. As you turn there, I was thinking this week that I'm in my 28th year of uh, sitting across from people every day, certainly every work day, and sometimes day six and seven also, and though every, every story I hear is different, uh, there's one thing that kind of runs through the, the whole makeup of a human being, and that is we relate to story, and we relate to stories. Every person that's ever sat across from me, I guess by now thousands of people, they have that one thing in common. They are there, uh, among other things, to share their story, their life story with me and all the foul ups and bleeps and blunders and celebrations and wonderful things that happened too. So on that note, a writer named Robin DeMurga said this about story. We humans live in a middle. We live in that in-between somewhere after once upon a time and before and they lived happily ever after. Like we're, we're beyond once upon a time in our timeline, but we're not there till happily ever after yet. So we're, we're kind of stuck. We live in this in-between place called human life, life on the earth. And Dan Allender, who's probably done the most uh, prolific work on story and, and uh, uh, Christ following and human, humanness uh, says this on that note, but God is not bound by time, nor is our story. We desperately want our situation to be solved. We want resolution. However, God unfolds the plot in his time, not ours. All of us are beset by woes. All of us are worried to the core, longing for rest and justice and peace and home and in urgent need of forbearance and gentleness. You feel that this morning? Like, do you feel the tension of being kind of in your own story beyond the once upon a time, but not yet to the happily ever after? And uh, what Allender says is that it's so frustrating, life so frustratingly goes according to his time clock, not mine. And a great British theologian, Phillips Brooks, was uh, found pacing in his office and someone asked him, but Dr. Brooks, what's wrong? And he said, well, I'm in a hurry and God isn't again. <laughs> right? like, he is not in a hurry. Uh, like I am. So today I want to ask you to do something. We're going to walk through a story, one of many in Scripture, that is part of the bigger story. So rather than teaching some principles along the way, I just want us just to spend a few minutes just walking through the story with our hearts and our minds, our thinking and our feelings and our passions, our, our own stories, our memories. So I want you to, to walk deeply in this, uh, in this story. And then at the very end, we'll, we'll talk about some principles and some takeaways. But for just the first few minutes, let's just let the text not just teach us, but let's let the text get in us about this magnificent God that we serve and these very human people, very much in the human condition that, uh, that cross his path. So it starts in, in verse 40. So let's just let the story Happened. Jesus is coming back from the other side of the lake, and <clears throat> I can just kind of see Luke as he forms how he's going to tell this story to his friend Theophilus. I just see him weaving this story together, kind of going, you know, the folks that are reading this are going to, Theophilus is going to think it's crazy so far. This is really going to be crazy what I'm about to tell him. So it's about to get even crazier with what Luke talks about here. So look at uh, verse 40, chapter 8. Now when Jesus returned, I mean, when he returned from the other side of the lake, from the from the, uh, delivering the demoniac. When he returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was ruler of the synagogue. 
And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. So here we have this man. He was called a ruler of the synagogue. This is a man who would be well regarded in his community. And his job was, uh, he was, I guess you could say, he was kind of the Kevin Perry of the synagogue. Like he's the one that organized worship. He chose what would be sung. He chose what readings would be read. In this, in this case, Jairus would even choose who the teacher was going to be on a given Sabbath. So very high standing. Uh, it was basically, he was the synagogue president. Uh, but today, he's got another title. Today, he, he's daddy. He's not synagogue ruler anymore. He's a, he's a daddy. It reminds me of um, a good friend of mine in seminary. His father-in-law was a very, very well-known uh, college football coach. And uh, we went to visit them, and, and our son Luke was a little bitty. He was about three years old, and my friend had twin daughters. And so we went into this coach, we were visiting his father-in-law, went into this coach's office, and Orange Bowl trophies, and this bowl, and that bowl, and coach of the year, all this incredible, huge office. And we, we couldn't find the coach. We heard him, but we couldn't find him. And we looked around. He was laying on the floor of his office, playing with his granddaughters and Luke rolling around the floor. So he wasn't a world-famous coach. He wasn't SEC coach of the year. He was grandpa and, and surrogate grandpa to Luke on that day. It reminds me of that scene in my head. So Jairus, the synagogue ruler, he's not a ruler when he falls down in, 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 uh, on the ground in front of Jesus. Look at verse 42. How come? For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And if any church in the world recognizes the scary thing of sick children, Fellowship Bible Church does. We know as a church body, we have prayed and we have cried and we have rejoiced and we prayed some more and we've been afraid and we've worried and we've trusted. We've done those things as a church family for, for quite a while among a lot of families in our church. So we are positioned to know what this man, a lot of power in the religious world, when he falls down in front of Jesus, he is imploring him. I'm going to be borrowing a lot from Mark's take on this same story. So a lot of things I want to refer is back to Mark chapter 5. But Mark says um, that the wording Jairus used was what we would consider to be something like little lamb or my little girl. And so he falls down in front of Jesus. This daddy scared to death. He falls down in front of Jesus and says, listen, my little girl is sick and she is dying. Please, he implored him, please, please come to my house and lay your hands on her and heal her. And Luke adds, she was 12 years old. It's easy to miss. Luke was saying, the doctor was saying to us, now, wait a minute. You may think that he's talking about a little bitty toddler. He's talking about a 12 year old girl where in that culture, 12 years old for a female was her entrance into womanhood. The bat, bat mitzvah for a female was at 12 years old, a bar mitzvah at, at 13. And so Luke was letting us know, no, this daddy still sees this woman as his baby. Now, we parents know that, right? My big old 6'1", 23-year-old son, that's my baby. And that's for sure Sheila's baby. <laughs> so parents say, no, no, it doesn't matter how old or how big they get. That's my baby. And so Jairus is throwing himself on the ground, not the synagogue ruler. He's daddy. And he's throwing himself on the ground. He's saying, my little lamb, my little girl is dying. Please, please come with me and heal her. And Mark says that he went with him. Our text says, as Jesus went, look at verse uh, 40, 42. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. The word pressed, by the way, means to throng one so as to almost suffocate them. This was a giant crowd and they were pressing in on Jesus and the disciples ever walked along. This is not a stroll along the sidewalk. This is moving through a crowd. People are elbow to elbow. So this desperate daddy 
uh, secures Jesus to come with him, and, and all appears that it's going to be well. So they're on their way to Jairus' house, and then something kind of crazy happens. Verse 43, this desperate reach. Verse 43, in contrast to a synagogue, male synagogue ruler, here is an unnamed woman. Verse 43, who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Now, Leviticus 15 goes to great detail to talk about what must be done around a woman who has a, continue, who has a discharge of blood, a reference to the monthly cycle. This woman had, had, just had some kind of what we would call female problem happen to her, and for 12 years she had this discharge of blood, it would not stop, making her ceremonial unclean, ceremonially unclean. And all these rules came up around this. She was considered to be a degradation and nasty. If she had children, they could not touch her. If she had a husband, he could not touch her either. No one was even allowed to sit where she had sat. She was outside the camp in every way you can be outside of a camp. Can you imagine the loneliness, the toxicity of her shame, her humiliation, and uh, how utterly and completely isolated she was around all of these people could not have anything to do with any of them. No one got close to her. As a matter of fact, there was a, several books. One of them is the Jewish Talmud, and it, it, it issued some remedies for a person in her condition. Listen to what this woman was willing to do. It says there she had spent all her living on physicians. It could not be healed. Listen to some of the things that were prescribed. Rabbi Jokanan says this, take gum of Alexandria, of alum, and of crocus. Let them be bruised together, given in wine to the woman that has an issue of blood. But if this fails, take Persian onions, boil them in wine, and give it to her to drink, and say, arise from thy flow. If this fails, put her in a place where two paths meet, and let her hold a cup of wine in her hand, and let somebody come up behind her and frighten her and say, arise from your flow. But should this do no good, take a handful of cumin and a handful of crocus and let these be boiled and given her to drink and say, arise from thy flow. But if this fails, dig seven trenches and burn in them some cuttings of vines less than four years old and let her take in her hand a cup of wine and let her be led from this trench and set down over that one and be removed from that one and set down over the other and the other and the other and the other. And in each of the seven trenches, Say to her, arise from thy flow. Can you imagine this woman? Twelve years. About the time this little girl was born in Jairus' household, for twelve years she's been doing this kind of thing. Humiliating herself, jumping in and out of trenches, being scared like she had the hiccups, boiling things, drinking things. There was another one that prescribed that she walk around with an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the spring of the year. Crazy stuff. Not unlike some things we do in our desperation. So this woman, ceremonial unclean, everything uh, that would not describe Jairus describes her. And here's in her loneliness, her toxicity, her isolation, her humiliation. Mark, again in chapter 5 of, of Mark, he describes her affliction as the word we use for whip. That this thing was whipping her like a whip. And not just physically, but emotionally and relationally and societally, she was beaten to a pulp in every single way. And so this woman comes up behind Jesus, pick up the story, verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately 
her discharge of blood stopped. That word there, she touched his cloak, it means to fasten onto or to grab. And it doesn't say this, but I have to wonder if once she grabbed his robe, could she literally not let go? This thing is driving me crazy. Excuse me while I do some adjustments. I need your take, Jeff. Okay. And I killed it. No, I didn't. All right. So she sneaks up behind Jesus. She grabs onto his robe, and it says almost as if she can't let go, even if she wanted to. She's holding on to his robe, uh, perhaps as, we, as it says here, to, to be um, as she was being healed. I wonder if she was even able to, to let it go. She, she grabs his robe. Immediately her body is healed. And then look what happened, verse 45. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, of course, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. Peter's going, how in the world would we possibly know who touched you? We can barely breathe, right? So, so there's this scene, and Jesus, imagine this scene. Just, again, let your imagination and your thoughts and your feelings go to this scene. This woman who's been through 12 years of what we described grabs onto his robe, and she is satisfied to sneak away and get what she was after with great gratitude. And Jesus turned on his heels. And you see his Middle Eastern face, his dark, dark brown eyes looking around at the crowd and going, who, who touched me? I know, I know someone has touched me. And uh, can you imagine the crowd going, uh-oh. Can you imagine that? You're in the crowd. Can you imagine being her? How many times has she been called out? How many times has she been humiliated? How many times has she been cursed? And so Jesus will not have it. He says, um, he says, who is it that touched me? And I think this is one of the most courageous things in all of the scriptures. I want to, to read you uh, Mark's rendition of it. It said, she came before him trembling and told him the whole truth. Verse 47 in Luke says, and when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all of the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Think about that just for a second before we leave that. Humiliated, lonely, toxic, ceremonially unclean, degraded, belittled, and she sneaks up and Jesus will not have her sneak away in continued humiliation. He turns and he says, who did this? Who did it? And the disciples are going, how are we supposed to know this? And this woman, very courageously, with fear and trembling, told him the whole story. Mark indicates she didn't just say, well, I knew you were coming. I got this condition. I grabbed your robe. And I hope that's kind of the end of it. Mark indicates that she told him the whole thing. Jesus, I have jumped in trenches. I have drank wine. I have drank Persian onions. I've done gum of Alexandria. I've done all of it. I've been to every doctor I could find and absolutely nothing helped. And I thought, I hoped, I wish with all my heart when I heard you were coming that I could grab hold of your robe and be in your presence and, and I would be healed. And that's what happened. And so Jesus, at that point, you have to wonder if she's thinking, uh-oh, am I going to be humiliated again? Am I going to be in the presence of a curse again? And Jesus says something to her that is amazing. And I'll bet it surprised everybody in that throng. Verse 48 and he said to her, how dare you sneak up and touch me? And he said to her, I can't believe you did that. Who do you think you are? No. He said, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. The only time in the New Testament that that word is used 
in that context. Daughter. The only person in the New Testament that Jesus said that to anonymous, female, nasty, unclean, pariah in society, this person is the one that Jesus says daughter. He makes a beeline for relationship with her. You just have to wonder how long had it been. Had her own father long ago disowned her? We don't know that. How long had it been since someone said one thing to her that was the least bit relational? And here is her healer making sure she gets seen, really seen, like the woman Jeff preached on three or four weeks ago in Simon's house, that she gets really seen. He makes sure of that and makes a beeline for this relationship. And think about all the, the re's, the the re's that happen. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus made a, uh, 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 there's a cascade like of relationship, restoration, replenishment, refreshment, and obviously redemption. And so this God who says, you do it, I, I give you life over and over and over and over and over again. I redeem you, I refresh you, I replenish you, I restore you. This God says, to, turns to her and says, accept all of this. By the way, the word peace there means exemption, exemption from war and havoc. He says, daughter, we're in relationship. I see you. I love you. Not only are you not in trouble, I honor you in your trembling, wobbly-legged faith to sneak up from behind. I honor that faith, and that's the faith that has made you well. Now, you go, and you're out of the war, and you're out of all the havoc. Still going to be a human, but you go in peace. Your faith, faith has healed you and sends her off to live a life way, way, way beyond survival. So meanwhile, Jairus, can you imagine? Jairus says, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And Jesus says, okay, I'll come with you. And Jairus is walking along there and somebody says, hey, uh, hey, great ruler, he, he stopped. And if you're Jairus, you're going, what, what is he doing? And someone says, well, He's, he's talking to this woman. What does he say? Well, we got to go. And the person goes, well, he, he insisted on knowing who it was that touched, that touched him. And if you're Jairus, you're going, who cares? <laughs> I don't care who touched him. And we don't have time for this. We got to go. Come on, come on, come on. And so Jairus at this point has got to be much like the disciples in, in, the, in the boat. We're going, does he not even care? Like, could he not just come on to my house? What is going on here? Is he delaying? Does he not care about me? Does he not care about my daughter? He said he would come, and now he's stopping to find out some information from this woman. we got to go. And then look at this verse 49, transition verse. While he was still speaking, someone from his house, from the ruler's house, came and said, hey, um, ruler, sir, your honor, uh, your daughter's dead, just don't trouble the teacher anymore. Can you imagine that? Minutes earlier, you've thrown yourself in the dust and the ground, and you said, look, my little daughter, my little one, my, my little bitty one, my baby is dying. Please come. And the hope that would come in when Jesus said, okay, I'm coming. And then to look over your shoulder, and Jesus has stopped talking to some woman with this throng and didn't care enough. If I'm Jairus, he didn't care enough to come do what he said he would do. And I would imagine Jairus' anxiety and his rush and his hurry turned into just absolute sobbing. I, in my imagination, he, he does this, and he can hardly stand up anymore, and he begins to weep and sob. And verse 50, but Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she'll be well. Can you imagine Jesus 
walks over to him. And again, it doesn't say this, but in my imagination, he puts his hand on bent over Jairus. He raises him up, puts his arm around him and says, hey, Jairus, listen to me. He's not saying to Jairus, by the way, don't feel the, the emotion of fear. The word is phobeo, where we get our word phobia. And what he's saying to Jairus is not don't be scared. He's saying, Jairus, this is a scary deal. Your daughter has died. Stay with me. The word there means to flee or to be terrified to the point of fleeing the scene is what that word fear means there. And, and Jesus is saying, Jairus, hang on. It's going to be okay. Listen, stay here with me in your fear. I'm your deliverer, just like I was hers. So this very tender moment where Jesus takes hold of this man and says, Jairus, it's okay. Don't fear, only believe, and she will be made well. So here's the power and the grace and the mercy of the, of the hero in verse 51. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. Again, Mark says it this way. Mark says that he, as he went into the house and there were professional mourners, people who were paid to lament, and Jesus had them exit the house. If Jesus from Tennessee would be kind of like, hey, all y'all get out of here. Y'all get out. We're about to do some serious business. And uh, it's, it's okay, like it was part of the culture to have professional mourners to pay people to mourn and lament. But Jesus says, I'm about to do uh, God stuff here. And uh, we don't have room in here for those who are paid to pretend like they're sad. Because this is a very big deal I'm about to do. So Jesus walks in with all authority. And he says, hey, y'all, y'all get out. G.A. And so he walks in. Verse 52 all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep for she is dead, not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. They knew the content that she was dead. They laughed at him. And I think that's probably when he gave, when he told the old, hey, y'all get out, get out of here. Verse 54, but taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that parent that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. G.A. Chadwick says it this way, theologian in the 1920s, he says it this way, the friend of children did not whisper in her ear some formula, maybe hearkening back to the lady with the issue of blood, wasn't a formula. He awoke her gently with a courteous hand, as well as a most loving word, calling her by the sweetest name for a child, which is derived from the Hebrew for the word lamb. And so he walks into this, this God who had called, Philip Yancey says that he called down the storm as if the storm was an unruly child. Stop it, he said, and the storm ceased. And he delivered uh, the Gezerine demoniac of the thousands of demons. He had done that and then he cures, he heals a woman just by the touch from his robe. And it's this God who walks in and whispers quietly to this little girl, little lamb, get up. Isn't that something? Mm. It's easy to overlook something too. It's a beautiful story of Jesus coming in and whispering to this child, little lamb, get up. And we can miss the fact that not only did he clear the house of people, he told death to get out too. Isn't that something? Get out. It's amazing. Charles Spurgeon um, was called upon to do his first funeral. 
He discovered he had never done one before, so he thought he would go to Scripture to find out what to do. He said, what I found was every funeral Jesus went to, the person didn't stay dead. <laughs> the decedent wouldn't decease. Right? So, so it's true. It's like, here's God. It's, again, it's crazy as it sounds. It's so easy to miss. Here's the God of the universe and human flesh walking in and says, not just the people, says to death, get out of here. And he did it. And death did it. Did what it was told. So what we have is a kind of a story within a story. So deep breath, right? So what an amazing picture. Jesus just walking along the road, the way, and these things happen. They walk across Jesus' path. And the God of the universe says, this is how this is. And I'm going to even the culmination of the story is not the physical healing. The culmination of a story is God walking into a house where death is reigning and saying, get out. He's defeated death. So let's look at some principles. Spend the rest of our time looking at some principles from the story as hopefully it is sinking into the depths uh, of our hearts. Principle one, the hero of the story is not Jairus. The hero of the story is not the woman. Who is it? The hero is Jesus. The hero of the story is Jesus. And this story, the hero of the story, all caps, is Jesus. He's the hero of all the, all the stories and of the story. Principle two, therefore, since he is the hero, we must dare to hope. We must dare to hope regardless of circumstances. We must dare to hope. I thought of the word audacious. You know, President Obama wrote a, a book called The Audacity of Hope, and I, I've not read the book, but it, it is a great title because audacious means willingness to take surprisingly bold risks. And if the call to follow Christ is anything, it is the call to boldly follow him despite all risks. So we are called and daring to hope. Talk about two barriers, two barriers to hoping or excuse me, two alternatives to hoping. One alternative is a thing called apathy. Would have been so easy for this woman to become apathetic and just give up 12 years, nothing's going to work. I've drank all the Persian onions I can hold. And so I'm, I'm done, I'm unplugging. I'm just gonna wait for this to be over with and I'm gonna die. And rather than going into apathy, she continued to show up and continued to seek and continued to literally reach for what she was after. She had audacity in her hope to do what she did. The word apathy, by the, me, by the way, means without pain. Apathos, without pain, without struggle. So we are called to be a struggling people. And the second alternative is anxiety, to take it into our own hands, to use obsession and preoccupation, self-will, intellect, ego, whatever I can find to save myself and to flee. The very thing Jesus told Jairus not to do. Hey, don't flee. Stay here with me. Do not move off into anxiety and run away. Stay here. So two alternatives to hoping is to live in apathy or to live in anxiety. I can live and completely, be completely unplugged, wait for all of it to be over with, or I can live in all this hyperactivity to try to make my own way and have no need of God. So Jesus is the hero. Therefore, we dare to hope. The two alternatives to hoping are apathy and anxiety. Then let's talk about three barriers briefly. Three barriers to hope. Okay, the first one admittedly is a stretch because I needed a word to start with a D, but the word is data, data. It's so easy to look at the content of what's going on. It's so easy to look at just outward circumstances and decide things about God 
based on data, not the truth. Like, I am grateful we have the story of this woman. All her data suggested this is not going, nothing's going to work. I'm done. Because she had tons of data, 12 years of data. By the way, that's 2009. How long ago is that? 2007. That's 2007 in our, if you think about what was going on in 2007, that's how long it had been for her. 12 years had elapsed. And if anyone had a right, quote unquote, to look at data and give up, it would be her. And man, Jairus, he certainly had data. It's called dead. His daughter was dead, not breathing. She was gone from the earth. Data suggested give up. Live in anxiety, live in, live in apathy. So data, second was delay. Delay, 12 years of delay for this woman. A delay so long that this little girl died in Jairus' life. It's very easy for delay, God's delay, our seeming delay to be a barrier. And third is disappointment. By the way, that's an old French word. I, it makes sense. I didn't know this. Disappointment simply means not to show up for the appointment. You probably knew that. I didn't. Um, but it just means Jairus is saying, okay, I'm walking along. We're halfway to my house. And Jesus didn't show up for the appointment. She died. So in his disappointment, it'd be easy for him to go, okay, no hope. So the barriers, data, delay, and disappointment. So hoping is really daring to wait in spite of these things, daring to wait in spite of what the data suggests, daring to wait in spite of delays, and daring to wait in spite of believing that Jesus has missed the appointment, that God's busy doing other stuff and has missed the appointment. So it's last thing, it's called us to a life of surrender. The word surrender there, by the way, means to roll over, like to surrender. If you think about this, surrender necessarily suggests or surrender necessarily demands struggle and fighting and warring and moving towards something. I've never heard of an army that after two or three shots were fired, surrendered. <laughs> surrender means we fought, we fought, we fought, and I can't fight anymore. And so I surrender. I lay down my arms. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I, I'm, uh, you, know, you win, so to speak. And so we're talking about living in surrender. We are rolling over. And yes, we wrestle with God in defiance, shaking our fist in his face. No, but struggle. You look at the counsel of scripture and all these people in scripture, they struggled. They didn't understand. They cried out in lament. They cried out in frustration. They cried out in utter despair to him. Read Psalms. Uh, read, read every book in here, actually, but we are people who are earthbound, belonging to him, already seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus positionally. Unfortunately, our bodies and our minds and our hearts are here on the earth, and so we struggle. So we're called, if we're going to be people of hope, we have got to be people who live in surrender. So it really comes down to one word, actually, it's called faith, and we'll start to end with this, faith Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says this, faith is the assurance, assurance, despite data, despite delay, despite disappointment, it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, not seen with physical eyes. It's having being people of vision. Like in my surrender, I have eyes to see um, and have a conviction that the things I cannot see doesn't mean they're not true. I can see some things, I can see data and content, 
process and God's movement and God's timing. And as Allender said, never on my schedule, never, hardly ever on my schedule. Despite that, in the midst of that, in my surrender, my being so audacious, having the gall uh, to have hope in spite of the circumstances. And the writer of Hebrews says, for by it, for by that kind of faith, for that assurance, that conviction, and that vision, the people of all received their commendation. They were commended for that. And these two people in our story are being commended for that today. They had no idea that 2019, little bitty Murfreesboro, Tennessee, whatever that is, they would say, that we would be talking about and walking in a story that they had no idea would last through eternity. They didn't, they just had the content. But underneath all of that was this eternal thing that we get to feast off of these words, this story, and the God who runs through all of it to ultimately deliver from death our hero. We'll close with this. David Mathis said this. In Christ, not only is the clock ticking on our tribulation and struggle, but also right now in the midst of all that trouble, God is pounding it for our everlasting good. So pain and suffering will never be the end of our story. All laments are answered in the lament-ending love of Jesus. So this morning, we're going to move into a so what. I mean, let's, leave it, just, let's leave it very simple. As we continue to meditate and to pray and to look and to seek, as your memories come up, as your hopes come up, as your needs come up, take a few minutes to write down and meditate on what those things are, your hopes and your needs, your dreams, your, your struggles and the delay or the disappointments or even the data. So let's take a few minutes and, and look at that this morning.